and it covers only a few verses from the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel. I'm going to look for a few minutes this morning at the entire ninth chapter because it, it tells of a number of events that occurred in Jesus' ministry in a very short period of time. And yet each event is significant. It tells the story of the feeding of the multitude with the five loaves, the two fishes. One of the miracles that's described in each of the four Gospels. In that story, we see that with Jesus, there's always more than enough to fulfill every man's need. Just eight days later, prior to this morning's reading, we hear Jesus asking these disciples, Who is it that the people are saying that I am? And we hear Peter's great confession of faith, and he said, You're the Messiah, the Son of God. Second chapter of Luke's Gospel, we read where the angels appeared to the shepherds and said, To you is born this day in the city of David the Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. So the reader of Luke's Gospel would have known from the beginning that Jesus was the long-awaited Son of God, but apparently it took the disciples a little longer to recognize who Jesus really was. Once Peter acknowledged his awareness Jesus began to tell his followers about his impending suffering death and resurrection. And he called them to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. When they heard how Jesus predicted that he would die and then be raised again on the third day, well, apparently this was something the disciples didn't want to hear. They didn't understand what Jesus was attempting to tell them. It would seem that they still didn't fully understand what Jesus had come to do. Maybe Jesus was the Son of God, but he wasn't what they had always envisioned the Messiah to be. Today's lesson is a story of Jesus and some of his disciples going up on a mountain where Jesus met Moses and Elijah and was transformed into a wondrous bright light. Remember how Peter wanted to stay there on the mountain and build three shelters and just bask in the glory of the moment? The story of the transfiguration is told in each of the three synoptic gospels. And it's always the lesson read on the last Sunday after Epiphany. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell about the experience that Jesus had with his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, his three amigos. <laughs> Jesus initially had gone up on the mountain in order to pray. And he'd taken those closest to him up the mountain with him. And as Jesus was praying, his appearance began to change. The scriptures tell us that he began to reflect the glory of God. And Moses and Elijah suddenly appeared there on the mountain with the others. That these Old Testament figures were there to represent the law and the prophets. And interesting enough, both of these men had previously beheld the glory of God on another mountaintop. Remember, Moses had been with God on Mount Sinai when he received God's commandments for his chosen people, not once, but twice. Our Old Testament reading tells the story when Moses encountered God when he too had been transformed in some way while he was in the presence of God. Moses actually had to, to place a veil over his face in order to shield himself from the eyes of the people. Our Old Testament reading takes place after the incident with the golden calf. Remember Moses had come down off the mountain and found the people worshiping a golden idol and he destroyed the two tablets on which the commandments had been inscribed. Moses was required to return to the mountain in order to produce a second set of tablets. Moses was unaware that his face was glowing as he came down off the mountain. 
Apparently, though, when the people saw Moses, they were afraid. The leader was forced to cover his face. Now, with time, the glow, which represented the very glory of God, began to fade. But later on, after the people had erected the tent of worship while they were still in the wilderness, each time that Moses went into the tent, into the presence of God, the same thing happened. And Moses would cover his face again. Remember the story of Elijah? Elijah had been forced to flee from the wrath of Jezebel. He had found himself in a cave on the side of the mountain. And while he was there, remember, he prayed to God. There was a mighty storm. But God wasn't in the storm. There was an earthquake. God wasn't in the earthquake. And then out of the total silence, God spoke to Elijah in a still, quiet voice. So both Moses and Elijah had had some past experience of being in the presence of God on a mountaintop. And here they were with Jesus talking about how he, he would experience the things he would experience in the future as he and his disciples were making their way toward Jerusalem for the last time. Now, Peter was being Peter. And when he, he witnessed what was taking place, he immediately wanted to preserve the moment. He suggested they erect three shelters, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, and just stay on the mountain and relish the moment. Now, this is one of the times I, I was, I'm prepared to give Peter a little slack. I might have suggested the same thing. Who wouldn't want to enjoy this moment and stay there on the mountain just as long as you could? And something amazing happened. The scripture says that a cloud overshadowed the top of the mountain and they heard the voice of God. He said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What might that experience have been like? One minute, Peter's talking when he should have been listening. And the Almighty God reminds him of that very thing. I don't know, but it seems that the, the moment was broken. God had spoken. I, I suspect that there was some silence for a while. And Moses and Elijah are no longer there. And that's all we know today. Then all three gospel writers tell us about the encounter with the boy with the evil spirit the next day. It was only in Matthew's gospel who recorded Jesus as he said to the disciples on the way back down the mountain, we can't stay here on the mountain. Our work is back down in the valley where the people are. Peter had wanted to stay there on the mountain, and who wouldn't have wanted to do that? Who wouldn't want to stay there with Jesus after what they just experienced? But the next day, on the way back down the mountain, back into the valley, Jesus was confronted by a man who started been possessed by an unclean spirit. And we witnessed how Jesus could come into a situation, a situation that seemed to be out of control, assess the need, and then meet that need with a tender love for all those that were involved. Jesus commanded the evil spirit to come out of the boy, and instantly the other boy was healed. Jesus made the transition from the mountaintop back into the real world rather easily and began to minister to those in need, something you and I are always that able to do. If we continue to look on then in the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel, we see that, that following this experience with the unclean spirit, we see Jesus reminding his followers that if they're to be great, they have to become like little children. He said, those of you who would be least will become the greatest. And it wasn't long after this that Jesus and his disciples were traveling through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem. And, and we know from our studies and past sermons and lessons that Jesus talked about the people of Samaria. There was no real love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. 
There's a long history of hating between these two people that can be traced back to Old Testament times. Anyone who was on their way to Jerusalem would be going there to worship in the temple, but the, the Samaritans believed that God was to be worshipped on Mount Gerasim, near the city of Sychar, in the province of Samaria. And, and this is where we have the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, remember? And then we read in verse 52 that Jesus sent some ahead of the group to make arrangements to stay in one of the Samaritan villages. And sure enough, the Samaritans, when they found out the group was on their way to Jerusalem, turned Jesus and his followers away from their city. They were not welcome there. Who remembers what happened? Well, the scripture tells us that James and John heard what had happened and they went to Jesus to see if they could just call down fire from hell and destroy the city. James and John, sons of thunder. Two boys who wore motorcycle jackets. And the toe, I don't know. Remember, those are the same two disciples that wanted to sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he came into his kingdom. Two of the disciples that still hadn't recognized what it was that Jesus had come to do. They weren't being welcomed in the Samaritan village, so let's just burn down the town. Now, they may have been absent, I guess, on the day that Jesus talked about turning down the cheek, loving their neighbor. Obviously, they'd missed the sermon about a godly love. Maybe they were remembering another occasion when God had used fire on those who failed to show respect for the prophet Elijah. In the book of Kings, it begins with the story of Ahazah, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the scripture tells us that, that he was a worshiper of Baal. And that some of these soldiers were sent to Elijah with a message that he was coming to the king because the king had been injured. He was dying. Now the messenger was not, didn't make a polite request to the prophet. It was a command. And the scripture tells us that Elijah called out fire and killed the captain of these 50 soldiers who had been sent with him. The king sent another group who demanded that Elijah return to him. And they too were consumed by fire and destroyed. The third captain came and he asked Elijah to have mercy on him and politely asked Elijah to come and see the king. Elijah did. But in the meantime, a hundred people had been killed. Though there are other instances in the Old Testament where cities were in fact destroyed by fire for rejecting the will and the teaching of God. So maybe James and John were simply remembering those occasions when they asked Jesus if it would be okay to burn the city. What we see here, though, is another example of the difference of the wrathful God of the Old Testament and the loving Son of God of the New Testament. Jesus said, we're, we're not into burning cities anymore. Let's just move on. And they did. What we find in this event is an opportunity for Jesus to teach a lesson of tolerance. Jesus was saying, we're not to regard others with this, that we disagree with as our enemies, but rather we should see them as strained friends who may someday be recovered by law. Luke's gospel then goes on to tell us that they traveled on, and a man came up to Jesus and said, I will follow you anywhere. Maybe this was an impetuous young man who was excited to be hearing this rebel preacher with a message of love and forgiveness. Or maybe it was an older person who had witnessed Jesus feeding the multitudes and who wanted to be a part of this new social movement that offered security for those in need. We don't know who the man was. But what was it that Jesus said in reply? Jesus may still have been thinking about the city that refused to offer that he and his followers shelter for the night. He says, foxes have their dens, birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place 
to rest his hand. No one would suggest that Jesus was attempting to induce this man to be a follower. What he was doing was being perfectly honest with the man. Something I wish maybe the church should do. Be a little bit more honest with the people as Jesus did. Too often I think that we allow people to believe that church membership not, doesn't really have to mean all that much in their lives. When in reality we should be saying that it should make all the difference in the world. We might have fewer church members, I don't know. But those that we have would know that God expects our total commitment. Luke next tells the story of another man. Follow me, those are the simple words that Jesus used to call others on others other occasions. To some of these disciples, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers and men. To the rich young man, he said, give all that you have to the poor and follow me. To some others, he said, if you'll follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. That had been his message to the disciples. But this man responded, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus replied, the man might seem rather harsh. But in reality, the man's father probably wasn't dead. Probably wasn't even ill. You see, Jewish law required that children see to the burial of their parents. This was a duty that took precedence over all other religious obligations. The man said, I'll follow you, but not now. But Jesus said, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let the spiritually alive be busy proclaiming the kingdom of God. What was he saying? Don't put off tomorrow to tomorrow the things that you should do today. Jesus was telling them, if you allow this moment to pass, it may not come again. Psychologists tell us that every time we have a good feeling but we don't act on it, the less likely we are to act on it at some later time. Some time ago, I, I was with Bishop Stanton, and we were talking about an issue that I'd been struggling with, and he offered me some helpful and thoughtful advice and insight. And I told Carol, like, I, I want to write the bishop a note, just tell him I appreciated his comments. It wasn't until I decided to use this as an illustration this morning that I remembered that I, I never had written a bishop. I, I had good intentions, but I'd put off writing until later. But I never did write that note. Jesus encountered the man and encouraged him to respond to his call now. He said, if your heart tells you to follow the master, don't put off responding to that call. When the Holy Spirit stirs our hearts, do something. We need to respond rather than delay. The third man that approached Jesus said, I'll follow you, but first, let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus wanted the man to understand that the need to spread the good news of the gospel couldn't wait. And he said, you can't plow a straight furrow while you're looking back over your shoulder. A follower of Jesus cannot be one who's looking to the past rather than to the future. Our eyes need to be set on the coming sunrise not looking back at the past sunset, as beautiful as it might be. What was it that the angel said to the people in the, in the church in Light Out of Sea? It's out of the third chapter in the book of Revelation. God said, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And Jesus was saying the same thing to this man here. You can't have it both ways. In the same chapter, we find the familiar words, Lo, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus calls us to follow him. But when he knocks on our heart's door, it's you and I that have to take the initiative to open the door. To the first man, Jesus said, make sure that you count the cost before you commit to follow me. 
To the second man, Jesus said, don't miss this moment. Don't let it slip away. And to the last man, Jesus said, if you're to follow me, I need your full commitment. There's no looking back. These are the same issues that you and I have to deal with in our own lives. And I suspect this morning that each one of us can relate to one of those people. Everyone who's never really seen church membership is having much to do with commitment. To you, Jesus is saying, I only want people who have counted the cost and are prepared to give me 100% of their life, not just a piece of their life on Sunday morning. There may be some here this morning who can relate to the man who said, Lord, I thought of you, but not right now, later. And to you, Jesus says, don't continue to surround yourself with things that are spiritually dead. Don't miss this moment. It may not come again. Finally, there may be those who feel a lot more uncomfortable living in the past, resting on their laurels. You're neither hot nor cold. To you, Jesus says, I'm not looking for lukewarm Christians. My kingdom demands you all. We began the service this morning as we do each week, praying to God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom those secrets are hidden. Paul suggests in his letter to the church in Galatia that we can act one way on the outside and be something quite different on the inside. He suggests that we can be ruled by the Spirit or by the flesh. In his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul acknowledges that Christ is calling us to be followers and he says that we've been set free for that very reason. But Paul's quick to remind those young Christians that they're not free to live their life on their own terms. He lists a number of things that make up the sinful nature of man. But rather than looking at those things this morning, let's just take a minute and look at what Paul calls the fruits of the Spirit. He lists love and joy and peace. He talks about patience and kindness and goodness and self-control, about gentleness. These are the things that are required of those who follow Jesus. They're meant to be the characteristics of the child of God. Paul says that when we're guided by the Spirit, we'll be able to overcome our sinful nature that he describes as being a part of each of us. Those of you that were here last week heard me talk about the word agape. It's one of those words in the Greek used for love. It's the word that Paul uses here, and he means love with no strings attached. It's love that gives with no expectations of receiving something in return. It's a love that's always wants the best of the other person, no matter what. It's the kind of love that lasts through every injury, every hurt, every pain, it's an intentional love that comes as a result of a deliberate action. We talked about that last week. Now the word for joy that Paul uses is a joy that comes not from triumphing over somebody else or gaining something at the expense of others, but the joy that it has as its foundation God's grace. The Greek word for peace that Paul uses is similar to the Hebrew word shalom, and it means not just freedom from trouble, but everything that makes for a man's greater good, it denotes the tranquility that comes from knowing that our lives are in God's hands, and that's true peace. Paul said God wants us to wants for us love and joy and peace and patience. The patience that refers to is not so much patience with things or events in our lives, but with other people. It's the kind of patience that's used in the New Testament to describe the attitude that God has toward mankind. It's the kind of patience that bears all our sins and still wants us. Anybody here get a shot of that patience? Paul says there's kindness and goodness awaiting this. Those are two words that are closely connected. And in the Greek, sweetness comes from the same root word as does the word mellow. Kindness and goodness and sweetness. That's 
what God wants for those who follow him. Paul says another fruit of the Spirit is fidelity and trustworthiness. He describes a person who's reliable and dependable. It's the kind of person that God wants each of us to be. And the last two things that Paul tells us that God has in store for us is gentleness and self-control. Again, the Greek word for gentleness has three meanings, and they're all characteristics of what we should strive for as Christians. It means being submissive to the will of God, being gentle like a lamb that's submissive to the shepherd. A gentle person is also one who's not too proud to learn and be taught. Think about that animal that's been trained and brought under control. It's become gentle and learned to live within its surroundings in a productive way. Paul suggests that a Christian can have that gentle spirit with God's help. The last fruit that Paul lists is out of self-control. If any of you have ever been with me on the golf, golf course, you know I haven't mastered that yet. It's the same word, though, to use to describe an athlete who has mastered his body. But it also might well describe anyone who's mastered his own self to the point that he can now be a servant to others. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fidelity, gentleness, and self-control. It's Paul's belief and experience that the Christian died with Christ and rose again to a new life in which the evil of our old self has gone away and has been replaced by the fruits of the Spirit. James and John asked Jesus if they could call down fire on the Samaritan village that failed to show them hospitality. And yet Paul reminds the Galatians that they're to love their neighbor as their self. He's repeating that golden rule that we talked about last week. The ninth chapter of Luke's gospel tells us that God calls each and every one of us to follow him. He warns us to count the cost. But he also pleads with us not to let the moment pass. He calls us to be active and committed followers. Jesus and his disciples came down off the mountain and journeyed back into the valley. We might say that he came back down to earth. He came back to where the people live, where you and I live our daily lives. But he assures us that we'll all have the tools that we need to complete the job. Paul tells us that if we're willing to accept God's grace, that he's eager to bestow us with the fruits of the Spirit to replace the desires of the flesh. May each of you come to know and understand and enjoy these fruits as we live out our lives in Christ. And may we not leave here this morning without taking a long, hard look at our personal commitment to recognize and follow the purpose that God has for each of us, both as individuals and as a congregation.